Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Okay, this is God's word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would... Uh, it would really fill us that if we come here with a sense of emptiness, uh, that we would um, know that you are the one who nurtures our souls. And I pray, God, that we would remember uh, the beauty of Christ, that you would shape our affections for him uh, more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, as I said, I'm going to take a break from the book of Acts. And what I want to do today, and maybe for like the next couple of weeks, uh, there's a couple of things happening. So, Uh, There's one stream of things that's happening in particular to our church uh, in relation to some of the things I shared at the congregational meeting. So first, with respect to our church, uh, I do think this like immediate next season is going to be a season of prayer and contemplating what our mission is as a church. At the congregational meeting, uh, I did introduce this idea of um, maybe moving to Brooklyn and... um, I guess I didn't want to convey, like, this is something we're definitely going to do, but something, like, as a community uh, to think about, okay? So after I said that, maybe I didn't communicate it um, super clearly because I got a lot of feedback, and I was actually very thankful for the feedback, and it made me uh, very thankful for this church because, uh, you know, people were so, like, gracious and open, um, like, open-minded, but still wanted to, like, express concern. So I think, um, you know, we have a great group of people um, and uh, I think very uh, spiritually mature people. So I'm excited for like this next season of uh, what's going to happen. But basically at the congregational meeting, introduced uh, the idea of possibly moving to Brooklyn, but going to Brooklyn is like not the main focus. The main focus is like as a church, uh, what is our mission? What is our purpose? Who are we here to serve? And during the next few months, I envision us having uh, this kind of open dialogue where we can talk about our church, who we are as a church, where we are as a church, and we can begin to pray together. And a couple of you suggested some town hall meetings, which uh, like we, I plan to do, so we'll organize some of that. Uh, but what I also want to do, as I mentioned in the announcements, like I also want to plan something maybe like every other week where we read something related to mission and we talk about it, and then we pray through it, just to kind of get our, like, mindset and our perspective, like, in the, in the right direction. And I realized I didn't really give much context as to why I thought we should maybe consider a move to Brooklyn. And believe it or not, it actually started uh, with me going through this process of becoming uh, bivocational. Uh, I applied to this bivocational cohort through our denomination, 
and it's been like very helpful in many ways. But one of the things that they, you know, made us do as part of the program is we had to meet with like a ministry coach, and they paid for it, which was lovely. It was, it's not cheap, <laughs> right? They paid for it. And I've never had any kind of coaching before, so I didn't really know like its value. I didn't really know what to expect. But basically what a coach does is like they're not coming in as an expert telling you what you should do, but they're just basically asking you questions, helping you clarify some of the things in terms of like your leadership, in terms of your vision, in terms of mission. And um, they're kind of like walking alongside you to help you like think through some of these things and clarify some of these things like in your own head. So I had uh, initial meetings with a few coaches and these coaches were not uh, from New York. They were like from the Midwest and uh, uh, we did not connect uh, on a ministry front. They were like super nice people, but I just didn't feel like they understood like New York City as a context. So then I thought about a person who uh, I had met a while ago through a preaching group uh, that I was a part of many, many years ago. And he's like a very wise person. And so I actually reached out to him. He, he has a lot of experience in, in New York and Manhattan specifically. He planted a church on the Upper West Side. He lived in Manhattan for many, many years on the Upper West Side. Uh, so he's very familiar with the context of New York. And uh, now he works for Redeemer City to City. And he's actually the director of training. So he trains the trainers. Um, so he actually doesn't take on new people to coach. But I reached out to him. And he's like, well, the fact that you're uh, going bivocational, that's intriguing to me because I think a lot of people see, like, um, in the future, there's going to be a lot of bivocational ministers. So it's kind of like a change in the model. So he's like, yeah, that's intriguing to me. So uh, he agreed to meet with me. So we met for like six months. Uh, This was last year. And we just kind of talked about the church. We talked about New York. talked about the history of our church. talked about uh, our people. And I was like, yeah, we meet on 37th and 8th. I told them, yeah, like about half the folks are coming in from Brooklyn, about half the folks are from Manhattan. Uh, He asked about the leaders. I was like, well, in terms of like the council members, they're all from Brooklyn. I told them that, but then our staff are all from either Manhattan, I'm from New Jersey. So he immediately understood like the challenge, like the geographical challenge that we face and how spread out we were. So then he asked, well, uh, what picture, what metaphor would describe what the church is for, uh, you know, the people you have? And we actually had talked about this in a council meeting. And I said, well, I think people will probably use the word home. Uh, So the church is like a spiritual home. It's kind of like a a family here in New York. And especially if you don't have like immediate family in New York, this kind of becomes like your family. And uh, I said, yeah, I would say people would think about our church as like a home, a spiritual home. Uh, Then he said, okay, so then what's your mission? And I said, well, you know, we want to reach New Yorkers. And he said, well, that's a little bit broad. Uh, the point of being specific in your mission is not to exclude people. Like, you could reach all people, but the point of, like, being more specific in your mission is you want it to help you make decisions in some way to shape, like, your church, to shape your ministry. And he said, like, um, well, why are you meeting where you're meeting? And I was like, I mean, I don't know, <laughs> right? It was available. Well, how does that serve your mission? I was like, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it does. He said, well, in my experience, people in Manhattan are not really looking for uh, a spiritual home to be rooted in. Uh, that's usually not their greatest priority. They tend to look for convenience. They tend to look for, like, many options. And the folks in your church may be there for a certain re- reason, but if you want to reach people in Manhattan, you really have to, like, shape your church and shape the ministry of your church to be able to reach people in Manhattan. 
right? So there's a lot of, that we talked about, of course, but that's basically where it started for me personally. And it's just kind of asking the question, like, who are we as a church and where can we, like, serve people? Uh, we don't exist for ourselves or the people in this room. We want to exist for the people uh, outside of this room. And so what is our mission? And the question of location is really the secondary question, right? It doesn't really matter where we meet locationally. The primary question is, what is our mission? And location follows that, you see? So I'd like for us as a community to consider what is our mission. And so I want us to, you know, I plan to organize like many different meetings. And I know like weekday evenings are not um, convenient for some people. So we'll try to do some things like on a Sunday after church, both combination of in-person and Zoom meetings. Uh, but basically get, you know, as many of us kind of participating and engaged in this discussion together. But before even we think about mission, my prayer has actually been more about our hearts. I think in order to have a heart for mission, we have to have our affections for Jesus to be stirred. We, we have to love Jesus. That's, that's where the heart of mission ultimately will come from. And that brings us to the second thing that's happening, uh, which is this past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday signals the start of the Lenten season. So these two streams of what's happening in our church and what's happening in the church calendar, whoosh, I want to bring together today. I am not sure how many of you are familiar with Lent or actually observe it. Um, you know, my oldest daughter, Abby, she actually asked me about it. So I guess maybe at school she saw maybe people with ash on her head or something. And uh, I didn't know she was even aware of it, but she's like, hey, how come, how come we don't uh, celebrate Ash Wednesday and put ash on our foreheads? And I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I, it was just never a part of, like, our tradition. Uh, historically, the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church and maybe certain Protestant churches would practice Lent, uh, but for the most part, Protestants generally uh, did not practice Lent, but kind of like somewhat recently, you're starting to see a lot more Protestants uh, practice Lent and do the ash on their foreheads. Uh, and so people who are not really from those traditions are now starting to practice it. So if you're curious about what Lent is or the history of Lent, uh, we can say there's some evidence to suggest that people started to observe Lent uh, as early as the second or third century. So pretty on pretty early on in the history of the church and then by the fourth century like it's a very it's very clear that there's all these discussions about a 40-day lenten season of fasting which was meant to imitate the 40 days that jesus fasted in the wilderness which is the passage that we just read so it's a very old tradition uh, in the church and it seems to have lasted even to the present day so lent begins on ash wednesday uh, which was this past Wednesday, and it concludes on Good Friday. And if you go on the calendar and if you do the math, you're going to say, gee, that's more than 40 days. Well, the reason why it's more than 40 days is because Sundays are excluded. They don't count because Sunday is actually supposed to be a day of feasting when the people of God gather and worship together, celebrate the hope we have in Christ, okay? Lent is meant to be a season of self-examination and uh, penitence or repentance. And alongside that, there would oftentimes be the practice of fasting. I'm curious for the uh, students, you know what fasting is? What's fasting? 
Yeah. Do you think that's a little strange? Why would people not eat? Not to put you on the spot. Should I, should I ask an adult? <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange practice, right? Why, why would you not eat? Uh, for us, I think this is like a, this would be a good time to, to fast together for the reasons that I stated. And if I were to take a guess, I would say maybe like most Western Christians uh, don't practice fasting on a regular basis. Uh, that might be an overgeneralization. I, I really don't know. But um, if that's true, and if maybe a lot of us or if a lot of believers that we know don't really fast on a regular basis, that actually makes us an anomaly compared to Christians in the past and Christians in history. If you don't really ever consider incorporating fasting into your spiritual rhythms, you're probably not alone because most of us don't see it as like a basic spiritual discipline. Maybe we see it like adding guacamole to your burrito and paying that extra money at Chipotle to get that guacamole. Nice to have, but not necessary, like the rice and the beans, which make the the bulk of the burrito or the meat. I want to suggest that we should look at fasting not as kind of like a nice add-on, but fasting is something that uh, should be built into our spiritual rhythms, and it enhances our, our prayer lives. And if prayer is like rice, then fasting is like the beans, and combination of both enhances the whole burrito. If you look at the Bible... Fasting is actually mentioned quite frequently. So Judges 20, the entire people of Israel fasted before the Lord when they sought guidance from God. Ezra and Nehemiah, people would fast when they sought God's protection, when they would prepare to begin an important work of rebuilding the temple. Get to the New Testament, the early church, they fasted as well, which maybe we'll see in Acts 13 when we get there, uh, when they sent off Barnabas and Paul to embark on their ministry to the Gentiles. Right? The church fasted. Even Jesus gives instructions on fasting in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And Jesus is actually assuming, he doesn't say if you fast, he says when you fast. So the assumption is, he assumes his disciples will fast. In our culture, we live in a time and a place, you know, there is an unusual emphasis on fulfilling our individual desires which turns us into consumers. We're, we're just used to consuming things, and so we have a hard time setting these boundaries around our consumption. And when... Uh, yeah, I won't tell you the scary thing about um, the economy <laughs> that I've been thinking about, but rooted in consumerism, I think it's going to uh, be very bad for us in the future. When consuming is so ingrained into what we are and what we do, voluntarily withholding something that we want is not going to come easy to us. It's not going to be natural for us. And uh, we would never think that withholding something that we actually want would lead us to feeling fuller, right? But this is kind of like the beauty and the mystery of Christianity. Christianity is so paradoxical in that way. Paradox means like you would expect one thing, but then it's like the complete opposite that's true. So it doesn't always make sense at first. Right in the Bible, it says the way you're going to find your life is you got to lose it. That's a paradox. The way you're going to experience uh, being wealthy is to become poor. The way to glory is to become a servant. The way to become strong is through weakness. The way to become full comes by way of emptiness. And I think that's what the paradox of fasting can do for us. When we become empty... When we refrain from feeding our desires for a certain period of time, 
there is actually great potential to become filled by stirring our affections for God himself. And so, long introduction, but we're going to look at this passage. I think it serves as the inspiration for this Lenten season. It's a passage where Jesus fasts for 40 days prior to starting his ministry. And to be clear, the focus on this passage is not necessarily on fasting. Jesus was just baptized in the previous passage. Now he's going through a period of testing before he begins himself his formal ministry in Galilee. And this period of testing shows us Jesus' obedience in the face of temptation sets him apart from Adam and Israel, both of whom disobeyed in the face of temptation, but Jesus perfectly obeys and resists the temptations of the devil. At the same time, what this passage shows us is the nature of spiritual warfare, and temptation shows shows us how Satan preys on the affections of the human heart. Jesus, in his humanity, he experiences all of these things, which is why the book of Hebrews can say, Jesus was tempted as we are in every respect, but he's without sin. Jesus fasted for 40 days, just like Moses and Elijah fasted for 40 days, and I'm sure there's some kind of parallel being drawn between them. But I also want to suggest that Jesus fasted for 40 days because in his humanity, he needed spiritual power to overcome the temptations of Satan. And in that way, I think we learn about why fasting can also be important and beneficial for us. First thing, notice how the devil uses the affections of the heart to tempt Jesus. So in Jesus' hunger, he tempts Jesus with food. He says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Then he tempts Jesus by telling him to throw himself off the highest peak of the temple because God would have to save him. That temptation is a little bit more subtle, but I would say it's the temptation for control. He's essentially tempting Jesus to test and manipulate God into acting. But we'll see later that one of the ways Jesus fulfills his mission is not by controlling the Father, but by submitting to his will. Jesus resists again, and he responds with Scripture again. Finally, the devil tempts Jesus with the power uh, of showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And he promises that he can have all of this, as long as Jesus falls down and worships the devil. And Jesus resists again, and he says, Be gone, Satan! And he responds with Scripture again. In spiritual warfare, the devil oftentimes will attack the affections of our hearts through temptation. What makes temptation so effective is it usually comes with a promise, uh, a counterfeit promise. Uh, in competition with God's promises. And it comes with a promise to satisfy us immediately. But that immediate gratification comes at a cost of long-term health. Uh, I think many of us tend to have uh, busy lives, and when we're busy, what we tend to do is we tend to just kind of react and do that which is most urgent. And when we react and do that which is most urgent, we aren't necessarily doing that which is most important. Sometimes, I think it's like the immediate things or the urgent things that have the power to steal our affections the most. And when we continue to turn to these immediate things for instant gratification, eventually what we find is they begin to control us and control our hearts. Fasting is an exhibition of self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. There's a section in the book of Titus where Paul's addressing every group in his church, and he says, you know, talking to the older men, I'm talking to the women, I'm talking to the younger men and to the younger women. And he gives them all of these different instructions based on who they are, 
But the one thing he tells everybody to be is he says, be self-controlled, right? So I, I would say to you, from the youngest student, exercise self-control. To the oldest, exercise self-control, right? That's what Paul is essentially doing in Titus. Self-control means we are not slaves to our desires. Like what we want doesn't control our behavior, doesn't control our actions. One of the ways we exhibit self-control is through the practice of denying ourselves the thing that we desire most. And that's why fasting is such an important spiritual discipline because it causes us to exercise self-control so that our hearts are not ruled by the things that we want, but ultimately it's ruled by a desire for just God himself. Fasting is a way to kind of reject that which is urgent and immediate so that we can cultivate that which is most important. And I don't know about you, but I think we could all use more of that in our lives so that our affections don't turn into this like uncontrollable wildfire that we just kind of go where our hearts want us to go, right? Second, fasting comes with spiritual power, and I imagine that's why some of the figures, including Jesus, would fast during certain seasons in life. In the Bible, power comes by weakness. When we are weak, we humble ourselves and depend on God, and that's when God demonstrates his power. In the Old Testament, God's people would win battles, not when they had the strongest armies, but when they were weak and dependent on God. And even though Jesus is fully divine through the incarnation, he, he took on the full experience of what it means to be human. That also means he knows himself what it's like to be weak. And therefore, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, as you would expect, he was hungry, right? But notice how Jesus consistently responds to the devil. He responds with scripture because he's depending on the word of God to stand firm against the devil's schemes. And there's, um, there's a final thing that we need to remember about fasting. Fasting also is not meant to last forever. Uh, it's not meant to be forever. There's a place in Matthew 9 where John's disciples ask Jesus, hey, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus responds, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And that's, that's really interesting. Jesus is basically saying, my disciples are not fasting because I'm still here. I'm physically here with them, and therefore this is a time of celebration. But he also anticipates the cross, and he knows that one day he will be taken away from them, and they will fast again. You might be aware Fasting is actually not unique to the Christian faith. There's plenty of other uh, people of other faiths who fast. Uh, for example, Muslims, they fast during the period of Ramadan. Jewish people, they'll fast on Yom Kippur. Buddhists might fast as a way of experiencing some kind of spiritual awakening. What makes Christian fasting different from all the other types of fasting? And, you know, dietary fasting, right? Intermi intermittent fasting, the difference lies in the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, in one sense, it's the ultimate fast, right? God in the person of Jesus emptied himself completely to the point of becoming obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. Jesus would experience a kind of hunger and a kind of pain and a kind of weakness on the cross. 
the depth of weakness on a cross that uh, we will never know. There was this cosmic separation as Jesus experienced the judgment of God on his sins, uh, for our sins upon himself. And because Jesus experienced this kind of cosmic fast, the great exchanges, we get to experience a great cosmic feast. Matthew 9 passage, Jesus says his disciples are not going to fast because the bridegroom is with them. The time to fast would be when the bridegroom is taken away, which refers to this age that we are living in now. After he talks about fasting, Jesus talks about how new wine cannot be put into old wineskins, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. It's a very strange thing to say, but he's basically referring to how his arrival signals the arrival of something new, a new age, and the dying of an old age. The new age is the age of the kingdom, where there's joy, and there's security, and there's peace, and there's hope, where heaven actually breaks through into this old age, like the sunlight that kind of can break through uh, the windows and light up a dark house. Matthew 9 anticipates this image that we see in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where at the end of all of history, believers are going to be invited to partake in this great feast when Satan is completely defeated, when sin is completely defeated, when death is completely defeated, and Christ reigns victorious. Christian believers long for that feast because what it represents is uh, the very thing that we put our hope in. And what it should represent is the very thing our hearts long for, right? Therefore, when we fast as Christians, the paradox is we fast as a way to feast in anticipation of the feast of Revelation 19. Uh, There's a book on fasting by John Piper, called A Hunger for God. Um, he, says some, he says this, and I like the way he puts it. He says, We have tasted the powers of the age to come, and our fasting is not because we are hungry for something we have not experienced, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying. We must have all that it is, impo- all that is possible to have. The newness of our fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by his spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of his joy arrives. The new fasting, the Christian fasting, is a hunger for the fullness of God, aroused by the aroma of Jesus' love and by the taste of God's goodness in the gospel of Christ. That's why we fast, friends. Why do we fast in light of the cross? We fast so that we can feast. When we feast on Christ, It renews our faith. It helps us to forget about ourselves. It strengthens our resolve to persevere in a very uh, difficult life. It gives us the gratitude that we need. It restores our joy in him, and it shapes our affections for Jesus. And that's ultimately what we need. That's ultimately why we need to incorporate fasting into our lives. I think we're in a good season as a church. Um... There is a a sense of excitement, uh, within me at least, hopefully all of you. Uh, I think we are ready to all kind of come together and think about who we are as a church and really consider our mission as a church. Uh, We're going to organize some things to formalize some things where we can do it and 
Yeah, just like Moses and Elijah and Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel and Jesus and many others would fast before engaging in an important work of God. Uh, this is a season where we can do that as well and uh, prepare our hearts, prepare us spiritually to engage in the work that God has set for us. And it coincides nicely with the, the season of Lent, right? So um, if anybody uh, has it on their heart to maybe organize um, some fasting that we could do to get together collectively, uh, let me know. That would be a, a great help. Um, if not, uh, I would just say let's just do it on like Tuesdays or whenever our prayer meetings are and coincide with it and then we'll pray together in the evenings and uh, I guess maybe break fast after that together. Um, I don't know. Uh, some of you may not have any desire to fast at all, which is, you know, okay too, understandable. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. Uh, but I would encourage you to consider it because I think it's, uh, it produces a lot of spiritual fruit. And uh, I think in this season of our church, uh, I think it's what we need. We need our affection stirred for Jesus. And fasting can be one of the spiritual disciplines that helps cultivate that. Let's pray, and then we'll feast together in uh, the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you that uh, we thank you that there is a great meal, a great feast that you invite us to. But we also know that um, sometimes the temptations of this world are so powerful that it begins to shape our hearts and our affections for uh, things that ultimately won't fill us the way that you do. And sometimes we need to uh, experience hunger um, for the things of this world so that we might uh, lean upon you to be filled spiritually. And there's so many mysteries uh, in the Christian life, and I think fasting and praying are two great mysteries. But you call us to um, engage in these, uh, these things. Even though we don't exactly know how it works or uh, how it's going to be beneficial to us, uh, somehow you use them to stir our affections for Jesus. And so I pray, God, as we embark in this next season as a church, you would guide us and direct us in our mission. Um, but beneath that, you would stir our affections for Jesus and fill us with your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.